0: That's the program notes. knows. And um, what Jewish life cycles, what we're going to be doing is we're going to try to gain some, I think, inspiration and information about various uh, the various stages of life. So we're going to start, obviously, from where life starts. So where does life start? Life begins at? The womb. Conception. Before conception. That was my joke. My joke of the day. Life begins, we'll, we'll see because we'll a lot of Jewish sources talk about what happens to the baby, uh, in utero, but even beforehand. Very interesting. Uh, Before conception, 40 days before right? Before conception, very interesting stuff. Uh, We'll talk about those um, and throughout the child's life, and because we have the benefit of uh, previous classes that we talked about parenting. We have a whole parenting class over here. Marriage, we spoke about dating and courtship as well, Uh, and what happens after you die. So there's a lot of stages in the life that we already covered in depth, so we could just go through it real quickly, and we hope to—I hope—be able to cover everything today. Because I don't want to have a part two for this. I typically, this would be a two-part, two-part, because there's a lot of information. Uh, but I think we could do it in one and one sitting. Um, and if not, uh, maybe we'll just—either we'll, we'll, we'll decide. Either we'll—we'll we'll stop and we'll say, okay, we only got to the child being three years old, and we have a lot more to do. We'll do—we'll do a part two some other time, or we'll zip through the end or whatever. We'll see what happens. Okay. Everyone's ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, so life begins before conception. We have the piece of Talmud. The Talmud says, very interesting, 40 days before conception, a prophetic voice goes out and says, this baby is going to be born, going to be conceived, he's going to be born, he's going to marry so-and-so, he's going to have this house, and he's going to have this field. So what's interesting is, is that the first thing we know about this baby is that some of his life, some of the very important parts of his life, are already predetermined. Who's going to marry? Seemingly a very, very important part of your life. Where he's going to live? Right? His residence, his house. Right? We know that the house is the biggest investment that we have, most people. And his, uh, his field. What is a field? Field is his livelihood. So it seems like. Off the bat, before we even get started with the baby actually being conceived, gestation, born, right, learning how to walk, becoming a toddler, becoming a child, adolescence, puberty, adulthood, it seems like those things are already set, set in stone. And if we analyze them, there's another piece of Talmud that I'm going to say in a second. What it seems like the Torah is telling us is that the focus of the child's life, even though or the child or this, this person's life, the real focus is not on these things. These things are incidental. It's already predetermined, right? Does that mean that it's actually predetermined or not? Um, that, that's a debate. Do we know exactly who he's going to marry? Or is it the kind of person he's going to marry? The kind of person or the kind of house? Those things are uh, debated uh, if we were to analyze this uh, text. I actually him once a class on this very piece of Talmud. Uh, But what I think that the lesson that we could take out is that when the Torah looks at someone's life, what's important, what it does not care about, is all the incidentals. So what does it care about? So let's look at the next piece of Talmud. The first one was from Sota, so they're at the beginning, 2A. This one is from Nida, uh, 16B. It says a little bit, the same, almost the same idea. Uh, it says that, you know, in a little bit of a different vein. Uh, Rabbi Khanina Bar Papa, he's the author of this statement. He says that there's a certain angel that is, uh, oversees pregnancy and gestation. He takes the zaidat, or more precisely, he takes the sperm and presents it in front of God what it says, crazy stuff, and says, uh, Almighty, this drop, what is it going to be? Is he going to be a strong person or a weak person? Is he going to be an intelligent person or not so intelligent? Is he going to be a wealthy person or a poor person? However, will he be a rasha, will he be a wicked person or a tzaddik or a righteous person? That is not discussed. And the conclusion of that piece of Talmud is everything is in the hands of heaven besides for fear of heaven. Which is a way of saying that everything else about life right, is already in the hands, it's in the hands of someone else. You really can't decide if you're going to be a strong person or a weak person. That's, kind of, that's what the Almighty gives. It's your DNA. It's given to you by the Almighty. You can't really decide your intelligence. Maybe you're working a little bit within a certain uh, spectrum. You know, you do have some saying that if you play a lot of chess and mind games and uh, lumosity.com and all that stuff. Uh, so maybe, but intelligence seems to be genetic. Some people are born with more intelligence than other people. Uh, similarly, uh, you see people that are successful in business and you kind of scratch your head. Like, how would these people make so much money? I mean, it's so bizarre. <laughs> like these people are just, they're not intelligent necessarily. They're not particularly driven. They're just successful because the Almighty wanted them to be successful. And these three areas of life are really all the areas um, that people usually um, take pride in. What do people take pride in? Their intellectual, um, their intellectual acumen or acuity, uh, their material, so that's if they're wealthy or not, and their physical. It pretty much covers everything. So, and what we're told here is that all those areas of someone's life, these three areas, the material, the physical, and the intellectual, those things you can't really take pride in. Why? <laughs> before you were even born, before you were even conceived, there was this, uh, whatever this means, obviously, to understand it at a deeper level, but this sperm was analyzed and determined what it's going to be like. How can you possibly take pride for that? You know, no one takes pride in the fact that they can digest, because everyone knows that that's not something they accomplished. So, in these three general areas of life, and these are the areas of life that someone does take pride, you have to recognize that this is not really something that you earned. It was something you were given, you were granted, you were endowed. with. <laughs> be thankful. Right? Take pleasure in it. Don't take pride in it. However, the one area that you do have a say in the matter, and the one area that, indeed, you can take pride if you are successful in, is... If you are a tzaddik or a rasha, if you're a righteous person or a less righteous person, because those are in the hands of man, and that is what we say when we focus on the, this, this person's life, all those other themes are seemingly material. When we analyze someone and their accomplishments, what they achieved, what they failed to achieve, it's always going to be the areas that they had a say in the matter. And what areas did they have a say in the matter? In the areas of righteousness. So, uh, and, and, and that concludes the Talmud, the Talmud. All is in the hands of heaven. All is out of our hands, besides for fear of heaven. That's in our hands. So, uh, off the bat, we get like a picture of really what life is about. You know? Before the child is even born, conceived, we already have this information of okay, what is important in life? What is the area that we're supposed to focus on in life? Uh, moving on. When does someone get a soul? At what stage in a child's development does the child have a soul? So this is actually a debate in the Talmud that uh, Dan is probably familiar with, because I said in the class uh, that he was listening to on the way here. There's a debate between uh, the wonderful uh, Emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who became emperor in the year 161, and the uh, Judah the Prince the chief rabbi of the Jewish people and the codifier of the Mishnah. They had a very interesting relationship, even though they were from such uh, uh, different backgrounds. Uh, the, the, the Roman emperor uh, at a time where Rome has yet to adopt any monotheism, monotheistic ideas, and the, the, the chief rabbi of the Jews, uh, they would study together. And the Talmud recounts dialogues that they had together um, about various uh, issues, and if you remember uh, when I spoke about what happens after you die, I we brought the Talmud that uh, that uh, it's, it's the same as that piece of Talmud. Well, it's the same, It's a little bit earlier on the page. It says that Antoninus told Antoninus is Marcus Aurelius, the Roman guy, told Rebbe or Rabbi the Prince uh, that the soul and the body can each exonerate themselves from justice. Because the soul says, the body sinned. Because without the body, I can not do anything. I'm flying around like a bird. And the body says, that the soul sinned. Remember that? The blind guy. The, bland, I mean, the blind guy and the lame oh guy. God. That's, that's a, it, Right after that, the Talmud says that Antoninus asked Rebbe. Rebbe's name of Rebbe, Judah the Prince. It's called Rebbe as well. Uh, if you open up the Talmud, and you just see the word rabbi. You're like, wait a minute, which rabbi? There's lots of rabbis in the Talmud. Why is it just called this one guy, Rabbi. The Rabbi Judah the Prince, uh, otherwise called Rebbeinu HaTadosh, was called Rabbi. Because he was so significant in the perpetuation of the Torah that the Jewish people just adopted him as he's the Rabbi of the Jews. He's not a Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Judah. He is the Rabbi. So if you open up Mishnah, it says, uh, Rabbi Omer. What do you mean? Who's this guy Rabbi? Uh, What's his last name? What's his accomplishments? That's Rabbi Judah the Prince. So he was asked, when does someone get a soul? Um, And the two sides in the issue were uh, at conception or at formation. Formation is about 40 days into the gestation. And Rabbi wanted to claim that it was at formation, 40 days into gestation. And in the end, he agreed, he changed his mind, he agreed to Antoninus that indeed it was at conception. So what's interesting is, and this is obviously pertinent, I think, to the debate about abortion, uh, is that in we view in Judaism, the Talmud says, that the souls actually there... At the time of conception, right away the souls—the souls, the soul's there—and uh, um, you know this kind of raises the profile of, of of a child in utero. You know, it's not just some sort of you know mass of uh, of cells, um, even though on a physical level it is, but it already has a spiritual element, which is part of what makes it. A human. Now, as Dan knows, I'm not trying to say that abortion under any circumstances is murder. I've never said that. In fact, if you listen to the class that I gave. I was actually very even-handed about it because the Torah is very even-handed about it. Uh, we don't view, a ch- uh, you know, a, a, a mass of cells, or even a almost fully developed child, or a baby, or embryo, or fetus, as being equal to a human. We don't believe that. Uh, but with regards to the development of a child, a child at conception already has a soul.
1: Is the soul necessary for conception? Because you said whenever a person dies, it's because their soul separates from their body. So maybe in conception, they can't conceive
0: unless the soul. Mm, very interesting. Good. That's I an like interesting it. point. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: like that. I like, I like the callback. Like Speak <laughs> up.
0: this is what I call a callback which means that we we had a class about what happens after you die and we described death the way the Talmud describes death as separation of soul and body so if death by definition is separation of soul and body hence life can only be when there is unification of soul and body and in fact I just realized you just just made me a little uh, smarter about this issue because that's exactly what the Talmud says it says it's not possible for the, the body, even whatever the body is it's almost nothing, it's negligible So, you know, that can have any vitality without a soul exactly what it says, so excellent, good job there okay so the fact that the child has a soul is very important for the next piece of information that we're told about a child in utero Why is that? I'm just
2: trying to listen. That's what I
0: thought you just said. No, I I said um, that that was the debate, whether the child gets the soul at 40 days or at conception itself. And the conclusion was that he gets it at conception. The
2: rabbi changed his mind. Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
0: Now, with regards to the discussion of abortion, um, the 40 days is invoked as a certain uh, critical. Milestone in the formation of the child because the Talmud says that a child before or a utero or zygote or a fetus whatever you want to call it uh, before 40 days is maya ba'am it's mere water. So that does seem to imply that there's less substance uh, in the, uh, you know, in this uh, in zygote uh, before 40 days and that changes that 40 days. Do you so. see
2: the significance of the thing
0: Why is that? Yeah.
2: Forty days is, doesn't re- represents change. So yeah, that's well, it a good point. Changed, but wasn't that how long Moses
0: was? Moses, and we just mentioned I mean, that forty days 40 before days. conception. Some, you know, that we have that prophetic voice going now. So that's very interesting. when we think about that? Forty days, yeah. I, I wonder recur- how this ties into contraception. The morning after. Though. Well, contraception. Um, That's a it's 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 a big discussion as to the you know the morning after the pill, no one really knows exactly how it how it works. There's somewhat of a um, we don't really know how it works. Plus we're not sure the conception but what happened at the time. Conception can happen in up to three days after uh, the intercourse. So morning after pill might just I don't know what it does. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a uh, chemist here, but... But I mean, w- contraception in general, so if, uh, if you don't allow... Um, I mean, because, you know, you
1: know, there's some people in the Bible you know, say, you know, you can't you know, spill your seed and, and
0: all of that. And um, contraception in Jewish law, what we have from the Talmud, which is what the Talmud says, uh, um, is that there's three women that are allowed to use a moch? And what is a moch? A moch is a certain kind of primitive condom-like contraception. Contraception. That's the Talmud. It's a long time ago. Uh, a woman who is pregnant. A woman who is uh, who is uh, not healthy to have uh, to have children or a woman who has, had, who has had a child within the past 24 months. Now, what's important to note is that you mentioned this, the, the sin of spilling seed. Uh, as to whether or not women have this prohibition is a debate. It's possible that women don't have this prohibition. That's why whenever we're talking about contraception, there's always been slipped into two categories. There's two kinds of contraceptions. There's contraceptions that uh, prevent the man from uh, inserting his seed one form. Another form is that, no, the man is inserting his seed. Is this uncomfortable for you, Shauna? Huh? Or are you just interested? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and there's another form, let's say, like an IUD or a diaphragm or whatever, or the to pill, where the woman is actually doing it. So what the Talmud is saying is that there's uh, three stages or three types of women situations where the woman herself, where, where, the, where we could have like a condom-like device which prevents the actual seed from from going into the women's body. Um, uh, with regards to the woman herself, that would be obviously much broader, uh, the circumstances for helactically uh, permitting that form of contraception. So uh, yeah, we don't believe in uh, forcing women to have babies every 9 months or 11 months. You know, so Like, no, no there's know, not Rachel provided provided that she could take care of them, and provided she provide she could provide them. We don't believe in bringing kids into right. a home of misery. Provided she they could take care of them um, emotionally, physically, obviously, financially. They, you know, we don't we don't believe in bringing children into a situation where they can't thrive.
2: I
1: think Rachel was after a Mandrake. Was a I think it was Mandrake. Uh, or aphrodisiac or something.
0: Yeah, and Leah Leah's child or something found
1: it first or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, but it was a Mandrake. Made. Yeah, and so that's what.
0: Um, that being said, uh, in Judaism we do believe that it's very important. What's the first mitzvah in the Torah? Be fruitful Be fruitful. From other. From other. The very first mitzvah in the Torah, and that's actually you know almost a universal because that if that was given to Adam, it wasn't. It was before the you know it wasn't a you know Jewish specific mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to, to humanity that it's important for us to propagate because the second we take a generation off from propagating, then the world ceases to exist. Um, you know, so it's a very important myth. Um, and that's why um, there's a lot of factors going on whenever we talk about contraception. So there's the strict strict legal aspect of it, and then there'll be like more of the spirit of the idea that, hey, listen, you know having children is a schlep. No one's gonna deny it. It's a drain financially a little, you know, it's probably hard to have a career and it's you know kids could be to take a long time before they actually, you know give you nachas as they say uh before they actually start uh you know uh, ha- you know providing positive uh, uh return on investment so yes uh you know but we don't believe in saying, "Oh, yeah." I'm, to me, it's just about my career, and I don't want to have any kids. And no, we we believe that your job is you have a Jewish tradition that you receive from your parents and all the way back from Sinai, and it's important for you to have children, and that's part of your life, part of your self profession is going to be giving up for someone else. That means your children and your family. Uh, but we don't believe in you know in in forcing. Uh, families to go beyond their means and to just have a thousand kids running around in diapers and clawing at each other and, you know, a thousand kids. Four, five, six, seven, what about that group maybe. in Boston? Which group in Boston? The Hasidic group in Boston.
2: They figured they should have as many kids as possible to replace the uh, uh, Jewish population.
0: Well, why just Boston? There's Hasidic families in Williamsburg and Brooklyn and upstate New York. Why do you still
2: about Boston?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, they have big families, and some of them can really handle it. You know, my, my mom, she should live and well. She's a champ. She had nine babies, all of them naturally, and she kept the house running like a factory, like a clock, you know, and all the kids were taken care of, and, you know, the kids' beds were made every morning, and the house was spotless, and there was food three times a day, you know, and there was a happy environment That's wonderful. Well, I'm I'm one of six. I'm the sixth of nine. So, six, six of nine. but you know, some you know women. I also think that women, especially, but men as well, they grow with the role. Like if you just give a woman straight out of high school or out of college, nine kids, they'll just they'll just self combust. Uh, but you know, if you have you have one kid, it's a huge deal. The like kid's up at night, and you know, uh, but eventually you become a greater person. You become someone who's able to extend yourself more without collapsing. You know.
2: I'm one of nine, and um, oh, wow. having, <laughs> having a large family is something that you grow up around. But
0: you, Do you feel like you were ne- neglected in any way? No. Okay, there you go. So the point is, it's possible it's possible that these Hasidic families, most of them, I hope, are able to do it, able to win it.
2: But it is not easy for the parents.
0: Oh, no. It it life, the, the but family. it's a life dedication. It's a live dedication. And it's it's remarkable when it's, the, you know, I, I know my brother told me, he was telling me about his family who lives in his neighborhood. He's like, they have to be told they're not allowed to have kids. They're not allowed to, right? They're not, because they just can't take care of their kids. They can't do it. There's something wrong there that just decided that they want to have kids every 11 months. They should be told they are not allowed to have kids. He tell me about them. Get or, you know, I. Find some other way. They, they should, some people should not be having tons of kids. So, um, okay, so a child, <laughs> child in utero. So we're told a very interesting piece of Talmud. Uh, I think this is the uh, one of the last pieces that we're going to talk about, child in utero. We'll get to actually once the child is born. We're told, this is a very famous piece of Talmud, so you might have heard of it that a child in utero studies the entire Torah. Have you ever heard of that? I
1: think you
0: mentioned that one. I might have mentioned it. Child in utero st- uh, studies the entire Torah. Some people uh, mistakenly uh, tell over this piece of Talmud as the angel teaches the child Torah. you ever heard of that? Angel teaches a child the entire Torah. Well, either way, what the Talmud actually says is that the child is taught the whole Torah. It doesn't tell you who's teaching the Torah. Now, as the child is about to be born, an angel comes, taps them on his mouth, makes him forget the entire Torah, and the child's born. So people say, some people there's an angel involved in the story. So people say, oh, the angel teaches them the Torah. And in fact, the angel actually makes him forget the Torah. And this, this, this Talmud is, is somewhat... Bizarre, like we're taking a child and we're teaching them the entire Torah, only to make them forget it. Yeah. Like that's the question. Well, what's the benefit of teaching a child Torah if the child's going to forget it? Well,
1: that might give him the right or wrong feeling. That's exactly what I was going to say. The conscious, the conscious.
0: Well, maybe there's, that there's something within a human, the basic human morality that kind of people, even people don't have. have it. Torah. Right. They kind of know what's right and well, wrong. Don't,
1: you don't murder people. You don't try to hurt other people. There's certain codes that we're all born with.
0: And that's universal because right. maybe that's, it's 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 uh, implanted really deep within ourselves. It, is that uh, the
2: Yetzer HaTath and the Yetzer?
0: Well, we'll get to that because we haven't yet met the Yetzer Tov and Yetzer. We're going to get them really soon. Uh, but it seems like... Uh, so that's a very good answer. When you think about that. I was thinking... I just um, <laughs> Uh, The traditional answer given is that once someone studies something, even though they may have forgotten it, but it's much easier to learn it again a second time. means sometimes when people study Torah, deep, deep down they have this feeling that they've actually been here before. Like sometimes when you have a dream, and then, like you're in a real life situation, you're like, "Wait a minute! I think I've actually been here before." I don't, have, I don't have ever have that experience. Hey, like, you, you know, sometimes when you study Torah, you kind of connect it in a way that you kind of have this sense that you've been there before, and it makes the studying of Torah easier. Makes studying of Torah easier the second time around because you've actually been there before the first time around. That's the traditional answer given. Why we, why we have it if we're going to forget it. I want to present a brand new answer. And this answer actually found in the Maharal. And I'm so sure I'm right, and I'll prove it when I'm right. Okay. The Maharal uh, uh, was the rabbi of Prague in the 16th century. On that piece of Talmud, he says something very interesting. He says a child in utero has a neshama has a soul. In fact, we just learned that. It's a piece of Talmud. It's supposed to be a Talmud child in at conception gets a soul. What is a soul? A soul is a piece of sp- pure spirituality. The soul innately knows Torah because that's what a soul is. Soul is a piece of spirituality. Torah is a piece of spirituality. It's the same thing. child is about to be born what happens to the child as the child is about to be born what happens to the soul the soul gets clothed with Yetzirah with what's called an evil inclination which is physicality physicality enshrouds the soul and what happens to the soul its voice gets muffled its influence gets muzzled it gets buried beneath this mountain of physicality. And now it's there, but it's restricted. It's encroached. It's, it's contained within. And then, and, and so what he's explaining is that the child doesn't learn the Torah. It's not like the child starts with zero knowledge and over time develops knowledge. Like I know they used to say, when, the, when a woman was like two weeks overdue, they say, oh, the child, is just finishing up the last two pages of the a little time. That's what No, that's not the way it works. I'll get to you in a second. Um, the child innately knows the Torah because the child just has a soul and an unhindered soul. A soul that's not uh, overbearing or over was overbearing without a body overbearing yet. Without the influences of the body overbearing. As the child's being born, he is he gets the influence of the eight of the body, the physicality. And that, as a result of that, He forgets the Torah. Not that he forgets it, but the Torah becomes uh, submerged within him at such a level that he cannot access it. Okay,
1: so then a a baby then almost seems like that the soul and the baby are more one and whenever it's born, it's like it encapsulates. And does the soul know the Torah, but just the baby doesn't?
0: The baby's conscious in utero is, is soul-specific. So does
1: the soul so the soul maybe still
0: know? The soul absolutely does know the whole tour. And in and fact, and in fact this presents for us really like a... So, what, so what's our mission in life? What's our mission in life? Our mission is to let the soul's influence shine forth through the body. To try to make the body less of a barrier between the soul and our consciousness. And then that goes back to Moses. So like our... When
1: Moses linked his soul to his physical body, sorry, such you as said, when Paul
0: it was... this is great. That's exactly what I said about Moses, is that Moses was able to have a soul completely penetrate his body. And the body was no longer a barrier, and that's why people couldn't look at him, because his face was just so bright. Because so his soul, he was basically a soul walking around. <laughs> people freaked out. You, can't just, you see a soul, you see a piece of spirituality, eyes cannot see it. It's like looking at the sun. Either He had to wear a mask. So he was actually like
1: that one.
0: Well, yes, but over the course of his life, he worked on himself so much that not only did he punch a little, tiny little holes to have somewhat of a soul influence. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make these tiny little pinholes that our soul could influence our, uh, our consciousness. That's what we're trying to do. Moses completely eradicated this whole body-soul conflict. The body was no longer a barrier to the soul. The soul was completely shining forth, and Moses' face was like the face of the sun
1: ask question. So,
0: this is the same. This is every human being on the Yes, okay. absolutely, absolutely. Every human being has, has a soul. Yes,
2: but they—they but they all know Torah birth. But if they're not born to the Jewish home, they just don't get the opportunity to.
0: Now, there might be a difference between a Jewish soul and a non-Jewish soul. That's that's a uh, that's more of an esoteric discussion. Okay. But yes, a soul is a soul. A human is a human. Um,
2: no, but they, but they all have that wisdom.
0: Exactly, right. deep, okay. deep within themselves. Okay. Um, now, well, we
2: could call it maybe uh, in today's lingo, enlightenment.
0: That what? W- w- what would we call? <laughs> A person
2: that um, that has done the internal work.
0: Yeah, yeah, enlightenment. Right. Most, certain, most certainly, righteous Gentiles as well. But uh, we're now looking at the at the at the framework at the me, at the mechanism of how this works. H- how do we gain spirituality? How do we grow? How do we develop in, a, in you know in how, who we are as a person? The way we do it is from within. We don't need to uh, acquire other stuff from you know from without or from external. It's it's an internal growth. Why? Because we once had the entire Torah, and it's still within ourselves. It was just covered over by the body. So it's still there 1,000%. In fact, we have a prayer that we say many, many, many times, V'tein Chalkeinu b'toratecha." which, as I'll translate it, we're praying praying for the Almighty, give us our portion in your Torah. And there's an obvious problem with that. Give us our portion. Wait a minute. Why, if it's our portion, then it's our portion. We don't need to get it. Mm-hmm. We're praying to God, give us our portion in your Torah. What do you mean? If it's our portion, then it's our portion. Why do we need to pray to accomplish it? The answer is that it's our portion, but we still need to access it. It's all about accessing our, our Torah. We have all the Torah within ourselves. That's our Torah. It's our Torah. We once had it in, in complete clarity. But now it's within ourselves, submerged real deep. To access it is what we're praying for. Give us access to our Torah. What's the big deal to access your Torah? We have a body which is a tremendous barrier, steel cage of of physicality covering over it. And we're going to try to punch, punch little holes, hopefully to have the influence of our Torah, of our soul, come shine forth and bring the light to our life and our consciousness. Now, this is what I think the Talmuds say. And uh, when the Talmud says, a child knows the whole Torah, it doesn't mean that he acquires it. It means that he knows it innately, because he has just a soul. And when the angel comes and taps him on the lip, what he's doing is giving him a, uh, a, phys- a physicality, and then he forgets the whole Torah as a result of that. Not that he loses it, rather it just becomes submerged within himself. How do I know I'm right? This is going to be a little bit technical. I don't know, right? Back to the piece of Talmud and Sanhedrin. We had the debates of Rebbe and Antoninus. Well, we mentioned Rabbi and Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius really Antoninus. Antoninus, so were having debates, having discussions, uh, that discussion about the soul and the body. They had the discussion, when does someone get a soul? When does someone get a soul? They also had another discussion of when does someone get a Yetzirah physicality? Does someone get it at the time of formation, 40 days into the conception, into the gestation, or at the time of his exiting the womb? So Rebbe wanted to say at the time of formation. And Antonina says, no, if so, if the child already had the physical influence at the time of formation, the child would kick his way out and want to leave towards freedom. Or want to, we couldn't handle the constriction. So it must be at the time of birth. At the time of birth. What does Rebbe say? Now, wait a minute. Yeah. Listen, how come they can take
2: these uh, electrocardi? what do they call that, uh, high, uh, take a picture of the baby? And they say, well, it's a male, say. it's a woman.
0: Yeah, so what about so, that?
2: 3
0: Well, we say physicality. We don't mean physical uh, organs. Oh. We mean physical influence. Oh, okay. Base okay. desires, right? right. Uh, instincts. That's what we mean. That's what we mean. Uh, not, not means physicality, not physical uh, characteristics. So they have this debate. Uh, Rebbe says that at the time of formation, Antonina says at the time of exiting. And Rebbe says, You know what? I agree. He changed his mind. And in fact, he says, I'll bring, a, I'll bring a verse to support you. Not only do I agree that you're right, I'll bring a verse to support you. What does the verse say? Le rovates. At the entrance, or the exit, at the door, so to speak, sin crouches. This is the proof that when the child is being born, that's when sin crouches, that's when sin happens. Okay, he brings the verse, and fine. That's I one thing. No, 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 original sin, but the capacity for someone to sin is a result of their physicality, and that happens at the entrance at the entrance of the child's uh, child's entrance to the world. Fine, that's the piece of Talmud in Sanhedrin. When does a child get the physicality? At the time of birth. If you look all the way at the other end of the Talmud in tractate Nida, it's talking about the child in utero studies the whole Torah as he is being born. An angel comes, it touches him on his mouth, makes him get the whole Torah and it brings a verse. you know which verse it brings? Which verse? In the entire Jewish Bible there's a brain to support this claim. Can well, anyone give a guess? The same exact verse that it brought in Sanhedrin. Lefetach chatos Rovitz, At the entrance sin crouches. So what it means is that you have two verses... I'm sorry, you have one verse which says at the entrance sin crouches and the Talmud, in various places in the Talmud, uses it for two things. Thing number one in Sanhedrin, that the child gets physicality, gets the Yetzirah at the time of birth. Thing number two the child forgets the whole Torah at birth. How could you use one verse and derive two laws from it or two elements from it? The answer is Drum roll, please. That it's the same thing. The reason why the child forgets the whole Torah is because the child is enshrouded with the physicality. Hence, one verse really saying one thing. The child gets the physicality, and as a result of that, they forget the whole Torah. Booyah! Who disagrees with me now? Come forth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit Was that a little technical? It was a little technical, right? But I think and we'll get to... Yeah. The, yeah. Basically, we have two laws or two ideas on opposite ends of the Talmud that both derive it from the same verse must mean that this, it's only one thing that's happening.
2: So
0: what would be another um, word for the word sin? To sin, typically, there's... there's um, like on Yom Kippur, we have during the vidui, we have this certain. Uh, we say sin, we say chatat, we say avon, we say pesha. It's some of them are are, are sins that could be inadvertent sins. Some of them are uh, neglect, so lack of uh, uh, lack of vigilance. Some of them are actually sins which we, people do uh, with full knowledge. Some of them sins that people do like despite God. There's varying levels of sins. But in the verse, why is that? Well, in the, in the word chattas, the word, the word uh, sin uh, that we use for sin, in fact, from biblical Hebrew, uh, it's also used for missing a target. Like when someone shoots an arrow and misses the target, it uses the word chattas. When someone sins, use the word chattas, the same word. Uh, like if you actually listen to Israeli basketball game on the radio or on the television, when someone misses a shot, who chata? You're like, wait a minute, the guy sinned. He, he missed a shot. Okay, so maybe he didn't. He didn't bring Jewish pride. Like, why would you say that he sinned? The answer is because the word for missing a target and the word for the sin is the same thing. Because when someone sins, it's not we. For us, it has a very heavy connotation, negative connotation. But it means someone missed the boat. He like he, you know, he was a misallocation of. Uh, resources, so to speak, like you miss you miss the target. You were a little bit off in your direction, so it doesn't have as bad of a negative connotation in Hebrew as it may have in English. Uh, the, that specific word of, of of sin, like there are more egregious for, forms of sin, like pesha, which means uh, what someone was negligent or someone neglect or someone did something uh, 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 sinned uh, with with evil intent. But the word chata, the word we're using for this verse, is more of like missing the target. Um, so that's that. So now we basically cover what happens to a child uh, in utero. Forty-seven uh, minutes in. <laughs> I know. I
1: this might be a two-part. <laughs> yeah. That was a long birth. <laughs> oh, actually, close, one, close, more close, close, close. <laughs> one
0: more thing. One more thing. I find these things fascinating. I think it's, you know, because I, I do think also that we're told these things for a reason. The Torah doesn't just drive us crazy with information that we're not going to be. That has no value for us, and I think that there's lessons that we can take from this. Like, uh, for me, it's a major, major insight: the fact that someone has the Torah within themselves already. To me, it's also comforting. You know, when someone really stops for a second and tries to analyze and think about the responsibilities that they have in life, it could be very overwhelming. It could be. There's something that I need to do. I need to accomplish. I have responsibilities, and I have no idea, no earthly idea, where to even start. That's very overwhelming. But when you know that everything that you need to know, you already have within you. You just have to bring it out, bring it to fruition, take it from the potential and actualize it. That's much. That's much easier. It seems much like much easier. It, and to me, that that's very comforting. Like that's an insight that we can take from this Talmud. Um, I think that this is brought home again uh, by the final thing that I'll talk about uh, of pre-birth also from the Talmud and the Talmud says when a child is about to be born they make him swear who's they it's not so clear but he has to swear what does he need to swear? they make him swear be a tzaddik be a righteous person and don't be a wicked person Even if the entire world is telling you that you're a tzaddik, the whole world is lauding you, lauding your praises, saying, you're a righteous person, you're a wonderful person. In your eyes, you should still be like you have room to improve. And you should know that the Almighty is pure. I mentioned this uh, several times already in uh, this setting. The Almighty is pure, the angels are pure, your soul is pure. If you guard it in its purity, good... And if not, I will take it away from you. So the person is swearing before he or she is even born that I have a pure soul and my job is to preserve it, to guard it, to maintain it in its purity, and that's good. Otherwise, I will lose my soul. Once again, we see one potential takeaway of this piece of Talmud is that our job is one of preservation. Our job is to preserve the purity of a soul. The soul starts off pure, just maintain it. Maintain status quo and you're good to go. As long as you do not defile your soul, as long as as you don't sully your soul, it seems like you're in good shape. Once again, this to me is very comforting to know that our job is one primarily of preservation, of guarding, of maintaining the soul's purity, not necessarily acquiring something from without. Well, that's yeah. It's also. I'm saying it's it's something that has to be analyzed. Like it has to be analyzed at depth. We're not gonna do that now. But yeah. But that's one takeaway. That's probably another takeaway as well. Okay. Child's born. So so
1: a convert, or somebody whose father was was not Jewish, or was Jewish, but the mother was
0: not. Well, even even non even non Jews are. It seems like that this that this. this uh, responsibility of maintaining the soul is applied to everyone. And the Torah um, is in them. It's just and I, I, that's the simple understanding of the Torah: is that they have a soul. That a soul, a soul is a soul. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but, but earlier you said that whenever a child was born, I mean, you were
0: talking, and you said they knew who they were going to marry. They knew. Who well, they, they didn't know that. Well, uh, no, but I mean, it was, it was predetermined, so to so speak. Predetermined, so
1: then maybe it's predetermined as able would become children.
0: Yes. Now. We just celebrated the holiday of Shavuos, and that's the holi- And the Talmud tells us very interesting about Shavuos. It says that the Almighty kind of peddled the Torah to all the nations. And we heard of that. He came to the, them and said to them, "What is the Torah?" They said, "What's in the Torah?" I said, uh, uh, "Don't steal." He said, uh, "Us? We love stealing. Not for us." He came to a different nations. Says, "What's in the Torah?" Right? Has heard of that. Um, God said
2: it's free. The Jewish says we will take two. <laughs>
0: So it's a very famous piece of Talmud in the tractate of Nehodeserah, and I think it's 2B right at the beginning.
2: Is that the one that goes on to say how you will secure it, and they said with our children? Uh, they said first with the, their parents.
0: We will do it, it and we will we will do it, and we will listen. The Jews seem like they didn't even ask questions what's in it. They just accepted it willy-nilly. Um, so there are the commentators that claim, that say that even when the God came to the nations and said to them, do you want the Torah? The majority of people said, well, what's in it? And, uh, and they said, oh, and God always told them their Achilles heel. So if that was, if they were ones that loved promiscuity and said, well, the, you know, thou shalt not rape or thou shalt not you know, sleep with another man's wife. Uh, and they said, oh, not for us, not for us, or thou shalt not steal, thou shalt honor your parents. Whatever, whatever was the, uh, the Achilles heel of that particular nation, he told, them, he told them that that's the content of the Torah, and they said, we're out. Uh, but there are those commentaries that claim that even amongst the nations, there were individuals who said, no, I want the Torah, I want the Torah, but they were drowned out by the majority who said, we don't want the Torah. And those individuals are the souls of converts, because they are associated with the Jewish people and their souls are Jewish souls because they were the ones that at the time of the giving of the Torah, they were like the Jews. They were like the Jews, but that, that, that they fully wanted the Torah. And, and perhaps, conversely, even amongst the Jews, there were individuals who said, we don't want the Torah. And those are the Jews that go astray and leave the Jewish nation, unfortunately.
2: My rabbi in California, we had this discussion one time and she said converts for old Jews coming
0: home, old souls coming home. Yeah, so that's, that, that's this idea. I know I've heard this many times. Actually, I've actually never seen it in sources, so I don't know. I'm sure there's a source for it if it's been that ubiquitous. Uh, but that's the idea. I, I'm confident that there's a source for this, um, and uh, and that would that would maintain that, that converts are Jewish souls residing in uh, jewish bodies that need to go through a process of conversion and they become Jews like anyone else. Okay, uh, child's born. So, uh, traditionally, there has always been a celebration of the birth for a uh, for on on the uh, Shabbos uh, coming directly after the baby being born. Traditionally, it has been that the Friday night there's a celebration for boys, and Shabbos day, Shabbos like uh, morning, there has been a celebration for girls. Uh, it just just this past week in our in our neighborhood, there were two what's called Shalom Zachar. Shalom Zachar is the name of the celebration for the boy. There was two of them this past Friday night. Uh, I was uh, half uh, inebriated and half exhausted. I didn't actually make it to one, either one of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, and then the uh, Kiddush, I mean, the term Kiddush is also used for girls and I think the significance of this is that we'll find again and again that with every milestone of someone's life, there's always a celebration. There's always a celebration. And the reason for the celebration is, I think, twofold. I think it's number one, appreciation. But you, anytime something good happens to you, you achieve a certain milestone, you celebrate it. And you celebrate it to thank the Almighty, to be, have appreciation of the wonderful gift that you were given. So, therefore, as a child, baby's birth, at bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, it's a celebration. It's a celebration to appreciate marriage, engagement party, marriage party, right? having children yourself, anniversaries. These are appreciation milestones as well. It's also responsibilities. And, and it's also responsibilities and recognition. To 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 take a time to analyze and assess what this means for you, right? You know, as a parent, you're celebrating the child's birth. Right? You're a appreciating it. It's a time for gratitude, but it's also a time to you know think about what this means for you now, at this new stage in your life, at the new stage of the baby's life, and what this means. What are the responsibilities? Uh, what are what does this entail? What does this mean for you in your new uh, capacity. You
1: can also look at it like people are there to supporting with you. In other words, they support you, they back you up. Mm-hmm. So so we used to call it rites of passage, Right. and the community is there to back you up with this new responsibility.
0: And, and that's why it's done so it's in communal fashion. Right. Yes. Now, what about naming? So, naming is a big deal. Um, it's. For boys, we know that the Jewish name is given them a time of the bris. We'll get to the bris at great length. I think that might be one of the last things we're about to cover today. Uh, If y'all remember, we actually, someone brought it up, circumcision. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) we are going to, we are going to satisfy, I believe, any curiosities that anyone had about uh, the philosophy or the ideas behind it. Um, But names... I think it's important to mention the importance of giving a child a Jewish name. Um, we're told in the Talmud that the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt and they were idolaters like the Egyptians. In character and conduct, the Jews and the Egyptians were no different. In fact, during the time of the Jews being, uh, of the Egyptians, uh, it, at the split of the sea, when the Egyptians were drowning, the angels came to God and said, these people are idolaters, and these people are idolaters. What is the difference? Why are you saving the Jews in a miraculous fashion and obliterating the Egyptians? They're no different. So what merit do the Jews have to be redeemed, to be granted freedom?
1: Name.
0: So Talmud says three things. They had Jewish names, they had Jewish dress, they maintained their Jewish name, maintained a Jewish dress, and maintained their Jewish language. You think about it, This is like kind of a head-stretcher, wait a minute. All these things are not mitzvahs. There's no mitzvah to have a Jewish name. There's no mitzvah to dress like a, like a Jew. Or what does it even mean to dress like a Jew? And there's no mitzvah to have a Jewish language. There's no mitzvah analyze all 613 verses of the Torah, none of them talk about having a certain name or a certain language or a certain mode of dress. Maybe sits maybe it's considered, but it says that they dressed Jewishly. It doesn't say that they did the mitzvahs associated with Jewish dress. Very bizarre that this is the merit that the Jewish people had to be redeemed. Well,
1: they kept their identity
0: from, from the Egyptian. That's what it was. Booyah. These are cultural themes that they still identified as Jews. And I think that perhaps the lesson is that when someone still identifies as Jews, even if it's merely cultural, in their behavior, in their outlook, in their the morals, they're no different than the Gentiles. No different. But culturally, they're Jewish. They still cling onto the superficial things about being Jewish. You know, the names, the dress, the language. These things they're still Jewish at heart they' still just they still they still could be saved we could still bring them back and, and, and they're still different they're still distinct as opposed to God forbid when someone is totally like like the non-jews doesn't maintain even the uh, superficial things of being Jewish the cultural things of being Jewish it's much much harder for them to um, to be readopted to readopt their Jewish their Jewish life, their Jewish learning, their Jewish principles, their Jewish beliefs, Jewish practices—as if to say that it's kind of the last fence, so to speak, between a Jew uh, who is assimilating to someone who is just totally indistinguishable from 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 the Gentiles. And that's why I think it's important. You know, we give children Jewish names at the beginning of their lives because it's important for them to know that you're Jewish. And you may have a secular name, and I, I myself have a secular name, and it's fairly common for uh, Jews to have a secular name. Uh, but it's also important for you to have a Jewish name, and that's part of who you are, because you're Jewish, and there's certain things that uh, distinguish you. Uh, you're part of you're part of a bigger picture of a nation that has a the most storied history of all nations that has uh, uh, even today that is. Uh, very uh, successful in a wide array of fields, that uh, has introduced a tremendous amount of insight to the world, in the areas of uh, theology, monotheism, obviously, but also in practice, in morals, in belief of of you know of what man can accomplish and man is created in the image of God. That's a Jewish idea. Every all man are created equal. That's a Jewish idea. Uh, you know, to, to, for a child to know that you're Jewish and what that means and that we know is part of it is is having a Jewish name. Okay, so that's Jewish names. Circumcision. So we know the Torah tells us that Abraham was commanded to do circumcision. Isaac has a circumcision on the eighth day. What does it mean the eighth day? Which days are included? So the day that a child is being born is day one. So if a child is born right now, so day one is Sunday, and day eight is Sunday as well. So easy way to remember what the eighth day is, it's the same day as the baby's being born. Now, if a baby's born Sunday night after nightfall, in Jewish practice, that means they're born on Monday. So their bris, their circumcision will be on Monday.
2: Nightfall being 6 o'clock. Or
0: well, it's 6 o'clock sundown, so it's, it depends. So, so today it will be 8.20 uh, p.m. Oh, how do you like that? If you were, if you were here Friday, that is very interesting. <laughs> so we're going to talk all about circumcision. Um, so it's the eighth so day, and uh, we know that it's even on Shabbos. And it's one of the few things that override the prohibition of Shabbos. Shabbos, uh, one of the prohibitions of Shabbos is not to remove blood. So slaughtering, you can't slaughter an animal on Shabbos. Uh, you can't create any wound, but even though circumcision is a wound, obviously, uh, it's something that is so important that it is the, um, it is supersedes, it overrides the prohibition of Shabbos. Now, common question people ask about circumcision is, why is it only for men? You know, so there's a few answers to this question. Um, Two of them are that we view as we'll see what circumcision means. What's the meaning behind it? What, what's happening? Uh, what's going on? Like, what's like? Is it just? Is it just a mutilation that we kind of like to do? It's like a branding. So you know, so it's a, you know some people say, "Listen, this is the way Jews are. This is like what makes us, you know, distinct. This was a mark of Judaism." Uh, but that's a very simplistic way to look at it. Uh, there's, in fact, a tremendous, tremendous insight, as we will uh, see really soon about that. So um, so why do women have it? If it's so important, why do women have it? So there's a few answers. The answers that I like is that, first of all, we view men and women as being two elements, two units of one entity. In fact, Adam and Eve were originally created as one being that were separated And to be reunited. So we view a man's soul and a woman's soul as two elements of one whole. I know this sounds platitudinal, and it sounds like a cliche, and it sounds like something that we've all heard too many times for it to have any meaning, but in reality, in Jewish philosophy, for sure, we believe that the man and the woman are two halves of one whole. So, and they complete each other. So when the man half may have the circumcision, doesn't mean that the woman doesn't have the same ideals and same uh, and same lessons that circumcision imply. It's just that her other half has it, and just like there's some mitzvahs that women have and men don't have, it doesn't mean that men are excluded from those mitzvahs. It just means that that's the women have, uh, women's responsibility. Some things that are responsibilities of both of them. That's the easy. That's the easy answer. Another answer is that women are uh, considered circumcised. It means that man has certain flaws. That women don't have, hence man needs to have a certain circumcision that uh, helps him engage in these areas of self-perfection. That women doesn't, the women don't need to have that constant reminder. So let's dig into the mitzvah, the uh, mitzvah of a bris milah. It's known as the Torah, bris milah, circumcision. And a few things to point out about it to make it significant. There's a lot of significant things about this mitzvah. Number one. It's the first mitzvah that a child does. First mitzvah. Very first mitzvah. The first week of the child's life. It seems like it's not just, you know, most mitzvahs the child waits till the child's an adult. Child's bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is when you start doing mitzvah. Bar means of age of a mitzvah. (laughs) This is a mitzvah that we do right away. First week of the child's life. Number one. Number two is the first mitzvah in the Torah given to Jews. Abraham was the first, wasn't quite a, technically a Jew, but Abraham was the first, uh, you either call him the first Jew. Uh, and it's the first mitzvah given to him. You look at all the mitzvahs in the Torah, there's many, many mitzvah, excuse me, mitzvahs given to Jews. The first one is the mitzvah of bris Obviously, there's something very significant about this mitzvah. So, the first mitzvah a child does, the first mitzvah in the Torah, I think it's also significant by the fact that it's a very Jewish mitzvah. Now, what I mean by that? No other mitzvah have Gentiles banned the Jews from performing like the mitzvah of Rismila. And you look at history, back in the Hadrianic persecutions of the second century. There was an edict that says if Jews perform this mitzvah of circumcision, they will be murdered on the pain of death. In the USSR, 2,000 years later, it was prohibited on pain of death to have a circumcision. And even today, in certain parts of Europe, this is one mitzvah that the Gentiles cannot stand. It's something very bizarre. It's a, and the Jews, conversely, observe it tenaciously, and even Jews that are very distant from Jewish practice still maintain this mitzvah in its traditional form. So on one hand, it's something that's very Jewish, that the Jewish people have embraced and uh, tenaciously observed over the years. On the other hand, it's something which the Gentiles can't... You don't ever hear Gentiles saying, Ah, oh, you cannot have a sukkah. On or you cannot light uh, Shabbat candles, or you cannot have a mezuzah. Those things they don't doesn't bother them. Something about, about that this mitzvah irritates uh, non-Jews, which is very bizarre, interesting, and intriguing. Like I say, you look at history. What mitzvah has been banned more than any other? that's this mitzvah.
2: San Francisco tried two say, years ago. Yeah, now. and the European Union is also.
0: Yeah, that's true. As well as... well as Germany, uh, so c- certain parts of Germany, they made a law a couple years ago, two years ago. They also want to ban um, all butchers, all kosher butchers. Yeah.
2: Why There's a why lot the going Jews on. are coming back over there. The Jews are flocking over to Germany again.
0: Especially Russian Jews. Russian, mainly for Russia. Yeah. I guess it's still an improvement. Well, I think... How's everyone doing, by the way? I Good. feel like we are going real fast. You only got up to circumcision. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of the information. The last thing I want to say about, uh, about, uh, about uh, circumcision that makes it significant is the fact that we're told in the Talmud seven times regarding seven different mitzvahs that, these, that this particular mitzvah is equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined. There are seven mitzvahs that have this classification and one of them is the, this mitzvah of circumcision, of brismila. So obviously, it's significant that it's equal to the whole Torah. What does that even mean? And what's going on? Is, is it nothing more than just a, uh, a a surgical operation that may indeed be beneficial? Maybe it's healthy, maybe it's not. It That's been debated. It is beneficial, right? This...
1: Women have less
2: surgical cancer. <laughs> yes,
0: and men, you know, there's less risk for infection. Um is that all it's it is? It, yeah. no, I'm just you. <laughs> so is that is that all that it is? It's just a it's it's a it's an operation for uh, the purposes of of uh, you know, just health reasons. That's a, that you know that that that's a that's maybe that may a, a an additional benefit. But what I found is very interesting. I found four different reasons given. For this particular mitzvah. Reason number one in the Talmud, the idea of perfection and completion. The idea being that uh, someone came, a Gentile came to Rabbi Akiva and said to Rabbi Akiva, Why do you, uh, why did y'all circumcise? And he said to him, Circumcision is a manifestation of a very important Jewish idea. What's that idea? The idea is is that we are imperfect and our job is to perfect ourselves. And we are born imperfect and the mitzvahs are trying to bring us towards perfection. And hence, we illustrate that by having a circumcision, by pointing out that even our body is not perfect and we have to do something to, to perfect that as well and our character is also not perfect. And therefore, uh, we perform the circumcision to remind ourselves that all the way at the beginning of our lives, that our goal throughout the course of our lives over many, many years and many, many mitzvahs is to bring ourselves towards completion and perfection. That's the first reason found in the Talmud. Seems like a very nice reasoning. Reason number two we find in Nachmanides. Nechmanides was a 12th and 13th century Jewish scholar uh, many areas of philosophy and Jewish law. Very significant figure. And he writes in Genesis, in a commentary in Genesis, chapter 17, he writes that if you look at the location of this mitzvah, it's placed on the epicenter of man's temptation uh, in, you know, in the area of sexuality. And as we know, no other area is as vexing, perplexing, and challenging for men as the area of sexuality. And therefore, the Almighty wanted to place a mitzvah specifically there to be a reminder for someone, for a man, that he should not use this wonderful uh, power of sexuality uh, for any other reason aside for a mitzvah or something that's permitted, but not, God forbid, for sin. In effect, what we're saying is that man is going to have a life of struggles. And that is by design. Because when someone has a struggle, it's also an opportunity for growth. If you didn't have any friction, if there was no conflict, if there was no challenge, then there would be no growth, there would be no progress, there would be no development. And... The, the Almighty places us in, a, in an arena for uh, full of challenges where we could overcome these challenges and be successful and become greater people. And in no other area in life is this true uh, more than in the area of sexuality for men. Hence, the Almighty wanted to brand us, so to speak, right there to be a reminder that you're going to have a life of challenges. And very difficult challenges and struggles and conflict, and it's important for you to make sure that you make the right decisions and you use these as for opportunities for growth. That's what is Very, very beautiful. And uh, that's also important to know that it's not just by chance that oh we could have had the we could have had it in any other place. So, you know this, this mitzvah could be done any other place. No, it's specifically at, you know at that particular place where the. The uh, the majority or the uh, the the greatest of man's struggles lie. And that's the second reason. Third reason is more of a Kabbalistic nature, and that is that we know the mitzvah of bris of circumcision is not merely removing the foreskin. That's the first step. The second step is you have to what actually was actually done in uh, in in real life is that uh, give a, give a, uh, an anatomical. Uh, description of what actually happens, they actually pull the foreskin up, they actually put a protector to make sure that the actual uh, organ is not touched, cut off the foreskin, and then they pull it back, and they reveal the crown, so to speak. And uh, in, in Kabbalistic sources, they talk about this idea of revealing the crown as being, so to speak, the mission statement of the Jewish people. That we're here to reveal the crown of the Almighty in the world. Our job in life, we're Lagoim, We're a light to the nation. We're supposed to teach the entire world about God. We're supposed to bring the idea of God into the world. We're supposed to be the moral guardians of humanity. We're supposed to bring the influence of God into this world, and that is demonstrated by revealing the crown. This uh, this mitzvah. <laughs> well uh, well, and, well that 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 might that might be a, a part I mean that's a certain element of the mitzvah. But life or maybe nothing 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 brings out the crown of God nothing is a greater demonstration of God's kingdom as when man is able to overcome his temptations. And the last thing we find is also in the Talmud. We find King David. King David in a bathhouse. It says, Talmud the story of King David in the bathhouse. And he's like, oh my goodness, I'm devoid of mitzvahs. I don't have no tefillin. I'm totally naked. I don't have a tzitzis. I don't have mezuzah. I don't have Torah. I'm, I'm devoid of mitzvahs. And then it says, he looked, out, he looked down at his bris milah. He says, oh, I have a mitzvah that's with me wherever I go. Wherever I am. In any situation, any circumstance. The idea being that this mitzvah is a mitzvah that's irrespective of scenario, of situation, of circumstance. It's not a certain setting. You don't have to do something. It's a mitzvah that's always within you. It's embedded into a human, into a Jewish person, is this mitzvah. And it's with him wherever he goes. Those are these four ideas. Number one, completion of perfection. We're imperfect. We have to perfect ourselves. Number two, Uh, It's at a very specific area in our life where we have the majority of our struggles. Number three, it's revealing the crown of God. And number four, it's always with us. Those are the four reasons that I found for this particular mitzvah. And then, here comes the bomb. Perhaps these four ideas are an encapsulation of all of Jewish philosophy. Remember we said, this mitzvah is equal to all of Torah, all of mitzvahs put together. Perhaps these four reasons are not disjointed reasons, but rather they're part of one flow. Perhaps we can look at our bismillah at this particular mitzvah and realize that this is a snapshot of Jewish philosophy. How so? Number one, completion and perfection. We are here in this world for a reason. We're here with a purpose. As we mentioned, God put us here, and if God did something, it must be that there's a reason for it. What's the reason? The reason is that we are brought here with, imper- with imperfections, we have character imperfections, we have character flaws, and our job is to perfect ourselves. Our job is to, uh, to complete ourselves. How do you complete yourself? The way you complete yourself is because you're going to have a conflict, you're always going to have struggles. There's going to be challenges in your life. And no greater area than the area of your sexuality. And if you overcome those challenges, there is no greater revealing of God's glory in this world, of God's crown in this world. So in effect, the first three reasons that we gave for brismila, if you were to structure them, you'll see that really, if you were just to spread them out, you'll see that this is, this is Judaism. Judaism is, it's a philosophy that's going to teach you how to perfect your life. That's what the mitzvahs are about. Mitzvahs are to purify, perfect who you are. And that's that's demonstrated in the bris milah. How do you do that? How do you perfect yourself? By having a struggle, by having a challenge, by having to make decisions, by having to overcome. Once again, that's also demonstrated by the the mitzvah of bris milah. Now, what does that do? What does that affect? How How is the world changed by someone... Perfecting themselves and acting in a way where they overcome their temptation, they do what's right even though it's difficult, even though they are challenged. They have a challenge that brings out the greatest, uh, the greatest crown of God. There is no greater demonstration of God's existence than a Jew who was able to perfect themselves via uh, 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 this process of engaging in nisyonot, as they're called in Hebrew, and challenges and overcoming them. Well, what, what, kind of what, what, what end, actually end. happens at child at eight I days, it's, you know, in the, it's almost no different than a shot. Really, the child cries for, if right. you have a skilled moho, right. the child cries for six seconds. The same, the same amount they cry for a shot. It's it's well, you know.
1: yeah, but still for parents. You yeah, know, for parents, it's, yeah. They don't want it to, you know, so it's kind of a sacrifice. Yeah, so... so. It's, it's they're dedicating to God, so they're kind of, in a sense, they're putting what they want to do because they don't want to hurt the baby. For God, for God.
0: So yeah. That's so that's kind of- so that's an interesting idea, but uh, but the, the the and I'm sure that we could find some sources for that as well. But the traditional approaches, if you were to just present them in front of us, you see an amazing picture. You see really the progression or, or the progression of Jewish philosophy. We're here to find ourselves. How to fight ourselves via uh, via engaging in struggle and challenge, and that and that and, and that brings out God's glory to the world and us being a nation. Of uh, the Jewish people, I like said, "Orlah goim, a light to the nation, it, influencing, uh, being the the the, the, the 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 spiritual guardians and the, the, the moral uh, the ones that are holding up the, the the moral values of the world." That is because we have demonstrated that we can actually go through this process of becoming greater people and have you know have using the Torah's lessons to perfect humanity. Now, bring us to the last reason. We had King David. King David wants to say that it's it's always with us. Why is it always with us? Perhaps this mitzvah is so important because it encapsulates all of Torah. It's a microcosm of everything the Torah wants to tell us. It's so important. We can never lose it. We have to take it with us wherever we go. And someone can be in any situation; they can be devoid of every other mitzvah. This mitzvah we can never lose because this mitzvah reminds us of everything else. So that's that's the mitzvah of ris-mila. and it's it's important. It's so important that we have to do it a child at, very early in the child's life. It's also important is that important to note that if a child, uh, let's say, doesn't if a parent, let's say, neglects their responsibility, doesn't, doesn't perform a circumcision for the child, so what happens? So the Talmud says, interestingly, that the responsibility to circumcise the child is passed over to the Jewish community. The father has responsibility. Unless the father doesn't do it, well, then everyone else is responsible to do it why because this is a mitzvah that it's a Jewish mitzvah it's a national mitzvah this mitzvah underscores the Jewish national mission and every Jew is part of this big picture because every Jew is part of this mission that we are of Character perfection, engaging with the struggle, bringing God's glory to this world. This is something which is so important to have it with us at all times. It's important for us. It's not just someone's individual mitzvah. It's all of ours, <coughs> and therefore we share responsibility for someone else because we're part of the same team. And if someone is negligent and uh, you know, God forbid, uh, does not take the initiative, does not do what they need to do, well, then we have to pick up, pick up, pick up a ball for them and uh, and uh, and you know, form second on on their child for them
2: are our brother's
0: keeper. Exactly. Well, but especially in this mitzvah. In other mitzvahs, we're not told, oh, if, you're, if, some us, if you see your neighbor's kid not wearing tefillin or not wearing tzitzit or not not doing X, Y, or Z, you don't have to go and force them to do it. Or you know, you wouldn't force them to circumcise either. But it's not your responsibility. It may be in a certain sense, well, we, we are uh, all together. But nowhere is it told that if they don't do it, you do it. But here it is, because I think this mitzvah is a Jewish mitzvah. It's a Jewish national mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that we have preserved for the time of memorial, even through great uh, challenge, because it's so important. Why, why day eight? Why day eight? So, um, that's a good question. So, eight, if you notice, uh, in lots of areas, we have seven plus one. We have seven, seven day week plus one. We have, let's say, seven. Uh, we just right now celebrated the holiday of Shavuos, so it was seven of seven plus one, the fiftieth day was Shavuos. Seven of seven plus one, we have seven. We have the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, was seventy-one. Uh, we have the Yovel, the Jubilee cycle, seven of seven and one. So there's lots of ideas, and in in Jewish mysticism, which I know very little about, as I've said many times. But the idea of, of eight, of seven being nature, and anything above that being supernature, supernatural. So the, you know everything cyclical is always in seven. Everything, which means that's nature, comes back. Everything supernatural is one more than that, so one above that. That's why we have the Yovo, we have the Sanhedrin, we have the Shemitah, we have the, uh, the Torah, again the Torah, the 50th day, and we also have, um, we also have this, this, you know, this idea. This this idea of this mitzvah being not merely a physical thing, not merely health wise, or you know, it's, it's more than that. It is, it's, it's something more. It's supernatural. You know, that's the idea. Okay, uh, that's the idea given. Uh, okay. So what happen, What 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 comes after this? So we also have a mitzvah. Uh, we'll say very briefly. It's already eleven twenty seven, and we will finish in three minutes. I, it looks like we will not be actually be able to finish everything, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, we have the mitzvah of Pinyon Haben, redeeming the firstborn. Several places in the Torah talks about this. What actually happens is, a child who is born naturally to a mother that has not had neither an abortion, nor a miscarriage, nor a C-section, just a perfectly natural delivery, and the child and the child's grandparents are neither a kohen nor a levy. So the father's father is not a kohen nor a levy. The mother's father is not a kohen nor a levy. The child is born naturally, then the child needs to be redeemed for five silver coins at the age of 30 days. Now, uh, when we had a first a boy, he was a boy, it has boys only. Uh, he was born naturally. He was born uh, without any previous, uh, thank God, miscarriages or abortions, thank God. I am neither a Kohen nor a Levi, but we did not do a Pidjon Haben, a redeeming of the firstborn, because my father in law is a Levi. So therefore, it's actually a very rare occurrence. That this actually happens. That's be natural birth, no previous miscarriages or abortions, and neither grandparent is is a Cohen or a Levi. Uh, what uh, now? Well, the reason behind this is that uh, it was originally intended that the first born of every family would be a Kohen. Kohen is someone who is designated for spirituality. And the firstborn is the first, and the first should be every first of every family was going to be designated for spirituality. So the firstborn of every, like we know, the first of every animal is going to be, you have to, you have to, you know, the one, one tenth of every animal, the firstborn of every animal uh, is, 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 uh, is uh, sanctified. The first of every Jewish family was also going to be a Kohen. Now, during the sin of the golden calf, the firstborns uh, participated in the sins, while the Kohen or the Kohanic tribe, the tribe of Levi, did not participate in the sin. And therefore, the sanctity that was originally intended for the firstborn was transferred to the tribe of Levi. That's why the Kohens today are those descendants of the tribe of Levi. But in a certain sense, uh, the firstborns are still uh, sanctified and they still kind of belong to the Kohen, to the Cohen Kohenic tribe. And therefore, if a child, the firstborn, who is not associated with the Cohen, and is actually the firstborn, there was no previous, you know, it was born, it was born naturally, uh, they have to be redeemed, so to speak, from the Kohen tribe. So what actually happens is the child, a small baby, is is uh, bought, so to speak. We buy it back from the Kohen, and uh, that, that way he kind of loses his saint, and he's no longer part of the Cohen tribe, and he, he's kind of ours. That's what happens. A relatively rare process. Now, what's important to mention here is that if someone is a firstborn who was born naturally to a mother who had no previous miscarriages or, abort- or abortions, and neither of his grandparents are a Cohen or a lady, they still today need to be redeemed. So even if someone didn't do it at the age of 30... And it's very common when someone someone like finds out about this at the age of 35 or 50 or 80, they're like, wait a minute, I'm the firstborn. I don't know if my mom met any miscarriage, Both, let's find out. It's kind of an awkward conversation, but let's ask her anyhow. And let's find out if either grandparent of mine was a Kohen or a Levi, and then they would need to be redeemed. And it's a process of a certain blessing. It's a actually a very beautiful ceremony. Uh, you have to find five silver coins. And you have to give it to a verified coin, and and that's it. You're done. You're redeemed. Me and your family money already. Yeah, we save money. That's why I paid down my wife. It's just much cheaper. Uh, so that's... Uh, can you give me seven si- silver coins? Seven. So you're a firstborn? Yeah. Do you know if you have any previous miscarriages or abortions? No. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that, I would you? I think I have that ceremony. You had that ceremony, yeah. I think,
2: so. I think so. I'm Not to, but I think...
0: Who do the coins go
2: to? The coin, a coin, so I just
0: find any it. coin. You can give it to any coin you want, okay. provided that they're a coin. You want to make sure you want, you want to make sure you find a family that has uh, that has a legitimate lineage, ancestral claim to being coin. So they know, let's say, like my father is this, whose father is this, so whose father not is an that.
2: Organization, it's always to an individual. It's to
0: an individual, yes. But you want to try to find someone who is actually certified is it not certified, but we know for sure it's not just claim, Oh, my name is Cohn but uh, so I, I assume I was a Cohn I actually know, like they have some families are uh, they could uh, trace back to coins from hundreds of years. So you want to try to find one of those coins. Or otherwise you might find it. there's a story told about the the goan of Vilna who was a firstborn and he said every cone he would meet he would give him five silver coins. Because he was never sure that, this one, that the coin that he was given to that, that, that was actually a rose coin. So every coin he meets, he said, just in case, here's five gold coins. And then there was one guy, and name was Rappaport. And he gave him five coins, and then he said, I'm not giving him well, this guy. That's why the famous Rappaport family, even to this day, they're like, everyone knows, that you try to find a Rappaport, because we know this family is for sure coins, no questions asked. So He found this one Rappaport, gave him five coins, and then he, he didn't do that anymore. So that's that. So we have a little bit of a picture, I think, of child before gestation, uh, before even conception, conception, gestation. Lots of things are happening. There's lots of nuance in the tradition. We had a, a, a very interesting takeaway from the mitzvah bris milah. And in fact, we found how the mitzvah brismila bris milah can be a picture of all of Jewish life. And, uh, and I hope that was informative. It's already 1130, so we'll stop here. Uh, we could continue. Yes. yes. To, uh, could so maybe we'll do the, that uh, part two. Okay. If you can send me the link, not only like the website, but I'll send it out to the group so they can. You can listen to part one. Yeah. Part one. Yeah. What's What's good about this is that it, you know, you can listen to part. You can listen to part two without part one. Well, part two will probably start with bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah to to the end. And maybe even a little afterwards.